Please turn with me back to Acts chapter 24 in your Bible. As we move through the last chapters of Acts, we tend to move a little bit more quickly because these are long narratives. Each chapter or so contains a big section of narrative. And Paul, much like Jesus, is appearing before uh, people in political authority. He's being falsely accused, things along those lines, and his life is at stake. It, it is in danger. And so, Today, while we may never see ourselves in precisely the situation that Paul finds himself in, we will see this. Here, here's kind of one of the big ideas of today. Paul is put on trial again, this time before the re replacement of Pontius Pilate. Uh, actually, Pilate's been gone for a while now, but then the new governor of Judea, not Pilate, but Felix. And Paul's going to stand before this corrupt politician who has all kinds of baggage in his background and his life, and Paul is going to be falsely accused by the religious authorities like the high priest who comes with a paid lawyer named Tertullus, which is just a great name. If you're thinking of kids' names, it's available. Your kid will be the only Tertullus probably in their kindergarten. But um, Tertullus, they had this paid lawyer come who's very smooth with his words. He comes up to present the case as best he could, as best he can, but his case is still full of misrepresentation and misinformation about Paul. So if you're Paul, what do you do? Paul has no choice as he has to do in his letters at times, he has to do what? He has to defend himself. He has to defend his character against misrepresentation, deceit, and outright lies about who he is and what he's done. This is both for his own sake, nothing wrong with defending yourself so you don't have to face some consequences that are not just, but at the same time, he's defending the gospel itself because he, as a leader of the Christian movement, his reputation is attached to the Christian movement, and so he also wants to clear the name for the sake of the Christian movement at the same time. And before the story is over, Paul does what only Paul could do, and he turns the tables on his judge, Felix, and he puts Felix really in the place of the accused. He becomes uh, really… <laughs> it's pretty amazing. He puts Felix on trial before this thing is over, even though he himself is the one in chains. So, the sermon is simply titled, Paul Before Governor Felix. I've got three points that go really in the order of the passage. I'll just give them to you now, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, Paul is falsely accused. That's verses one through nine. Paul is falsely accused. Number two, Paul defends himself. This is verses 10 through 21. So Paul's falsely accused, then Paul defends himself, verses 10 through 21. And finally, Paul puts Felix on trial, verses 22 to 27, the last verses of the chapter, 22 to 27. Now, I don't want to spend a long time on this, but I want to show you a few images just to refresh you of where we've been, because they're going to be talking about these past events over the last uh, number of weeks in Paul's life. Uh, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, you've got the Temple Mount here. Paul, if you remember, was uh, somewhere in the temple precincts. In fact, people think he was probably somewhere around this area when he was doing the t purification for the Nazarites when a riot broke out because people made assumptions about Paul that were not true, that he'd brought a Gentile into the temple precincts, which he would not have done and he did not do, and no one saw him do. Don't you love that? But they said he did it anyway because they assumed the worst about Paul. They bring him out, and they were beating him perhaps somewhere in this area. Uh, Claudius Lysias runs down from that fortress of Antonia up there. They rescue Paul from the Jews as they're bringing him into that big fortress on the corner of the Temple Mount, which today is only in the very foundation. Bits of it are left, but it's all gone essentially. They bring him into that fortress, and Paul spends a few nights there. That's where the Lord Jesus appears to Paul and says, you're going to preach not only here in Jerusalem, you're going to preach about me in Rome. You're going to present the truth about me in Rome, and Paul is encouraged. Over at night, Claudius Lysias finds word, remember from Paul's nephew, that there's 
trouble. 40 people said they won't eat or drink until they kill Paul. So they send Paul off with 470 Roman soldiers uh, to get him out of there. If you look at this map, Paul heads from Jerusalem about 35 miles to Antipatris on that first night. Then the foot soldiers return to Jerusalem, and the 70 or so horsemen continue with Paul the rest of the way to the city of Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. A satellite image that I showed you a year ago, probably, of, of Caesarea is this right here. You can see the way it looks today. Uh, Herod the Great had built all kinds of stuff here. You can see the remains, uh, just barely the remains, uh, of Herod's temple, or his, excuse me, palace was right there, uh, sticking out into the water. Um, you can see what it looks like today here. It's, I mean, the, the foundation was here and the other part of the temple was here. Where Paul stayed was almost certainly this last dot. So, so uh, where this X is, somewhere in there is probably where Paul was actually held for two years. When he appears before these, these uh, people, including kings, it very likely happened in that room right there. So you can actually go stand. Tyler Williams, one of our own, uh, Tyler Williams, he, uh, uh, he took some pictures when he went here. He actually stood in some of these very spots. Pretty amazing that Paul was, was right here for two years. Uh, uh, reconstruction of what it looked like at the time. There's two different versions I'll give you. Here's one reconstruction of what the palace looked like sticking out into the water. A slightly different version, but very similar, is this artist's reconstruction more recently. And again, Paul was likely held in this area and would have appeared before the governor in this room here, very likely, for those two years, while the, go while the governor lived in the back part here that has an Olympic-sized swimming pool that you can still see to this day in the middle of that little area. So if you ever want to take a swim, the Felix has got a spot for you. So there you go. Uh, and let me also mention one other thing just quickly now before we get to it in a minute. If you remember this, the, uh, this is Herod the Great, part of his family line. It's actually very incomplete. This is a simplified version. I'm not going to go through all this right now, but Herod the Great has Aristobulus as a son who he later had killed, okay? The grandson, Herod Agrippa I, survives. He escapes, and he has eventually three children, Herod Agrippa II, Bernice, and Drusilla. Well, just real quick, Drusilla, the granddaughter of Herod the Great, is in the story at the end today. That's why she's called a Jew. She's, the, she, she's, she's connected to this family, and she is married to Governor Felix, and we'll talk more about her in a minute. But just so you can see the connection there back to the other Herods that you see in Scripture, Drusilla is the sister of Herod Agrippa II. All right, with all that in mind, we are going to jump in. So where we are now is Paul has been taken to Caesarea, He's locked in that palace, and he's going to appear before the governor, and he's going to be accused by the Jewish authorities who travel 60-plus miles to come do this. All right, let's start back at the very beginning of our text, verse 1 of Acts 24. If you look at the last sentence of the last chapter, it says, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. That's that palace I just showed you. Verse 1 of chapter 24, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when uh, he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, now just stop here, the fact that the high priest came 65 plus miles from Jerusalem just to have, just to be there to give credibility to this hearing shows you the incredible hatred that these leaders have towards the Apostle Paul. This is a big deal that the high priest would be present along with other leaders. And they've hired this, this lawyer, and he is going to try to present the case as best he can, middle of verse 2. This is what Tertullus says, since through you he's talking to Governor Felix, the new Pontius Pilate, since through you we enjoy much peace 
And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, let's just, let's just pause at this moment here. First of all, let's be clear. The high priest and all the Jewish elders here, they can't stand Felix. They detest this guy. Felix has actually been a terrible governor. Okay, by any standards, he's been one of the worst governors, and they say that his actions in provoking the Jews through killings and all kinds of different things that he did throughout his time, he, was, he had been there for five years at this point, he was such a brutal guy and such an insensitive guy in what he was doing that his actions are one of the things that led to the final Jewish revolt in the later 60s AD where the Jews had had enough of Roman intervention. So all that you see here in these, ver- in these opening lines, it's not sincere, this is pure flattery from the side of the Jewish leadership and from their lawyer. It's pure flattery. It is not actually what they believe. They are simply buttering him up. They're trying to say what he wants to hear, trying to get on his good side so that he can sit there and say, oh, you're making me feel so good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel positive towards you, and they're going to try to get on his good side. And remember, I've said this before, flattery is oftentimes what you say to someone's face, but you would never say behind their back. Flattery is really often from an inferior to a superior. Think about it. Typically in flattery, an inferior is speaking to a superior, and they are trying to do what? They're trying to get something from them that they really want. They don't really care about the person, but they speak in such a way and use flattery to try to get something from him that they want. You'll see in a moment, Paul is respectful, but he does not use flattery towards Felix. Now look at verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man, that's Paul, a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything uh, of which we accuse him. And it says, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so." Let me just make a tiny little note. I don't like to get distracted on this kind of stuff for a long time, but in most modern English translations, you may have noticed that there is no verse 7 in this chapter. Now, you may have it in brackets. I think the New American Standard has it in brackets. Uh, Some translations have it in a footnote at the bottom of the page, the ESV, I think the NIV. The King James will have it. The New King James has it in the text. Um, So, raise your hand if you do not have verse 7. I'm just curious in the room. Okay, that's, that's a good many of us. Okay, so let me, let me say a quick word about this, and I've talked about this at more at length in past years, and I don't like to, again, spend a long time on this. We could do that. Here's a very quick reason why there are verses missing from uh, most modern English translations, especially in the New Testament. There's a number of them. Here, here's the reason why. You ready? This is, it's pretty much across the board the same reason, although there's differences in each instance. Here, here's the reason. Now, just follow me. I'm going to be very quick. Verses are not original to the Bible, right? We know this. Verses are not original. Verses don't show up until the year in the New Testament. Verses don't show up until 1551. That's a long time to have a Bible with no verses, right? 1551, a French printer named Stephanus, because you were asking, uh, he put verses in the New Testament. And when he sold his Bible, it was so popular, everybody after 1551 copied Stephanus, this French printer's verse divisions for the New Testament. Now, real quick here, he was using a Greek New Testament from a guy named Erasmus who printed it in the year 1516. It's the very same New Testament that Martin Luther used that started the Reformation, all that stuff. In many ways, it was a wonderful New Testament. But Erasmus's Greek New Testament text was based on only a handful of manuscripts in the New Testament, about six or so for most, most of it. And those manuscripts, for the most part, almost all of them, are written a thousand years after the originals. Okay? Now, since then, have we found more 
New Testament manuscripts. Yes, we have almost 6,000 today. And have we found earlier manuscripts than the year 1,000? Yes, we have now almost 6,000 manuscripts, and we have the three, just real quick, the three best manuscripts of Acts, the three great codices of the early church, the three earliest and best texts of, of, of Acts do not have verse 7 in them. And that is very strong argument against their inclusion. There's a number of other reasons why, but because it is missing from the very earliest and best copies of Acts, and it's also missing from a whole bunch of other manuscripts of Acts, we don't think it is original to the book. And uh, if you have questions, we can talk about that more later. But let's continue with uh, what is happening here. Paul is being accused. He's being accused really of three different things. You can sort of trace it along here. What are these accusations? Number one, they're basically saying, Paul, listen, you're a troublemaker. You're always causing riots. Every city you go to, somebody wants to start a riot, whether it's in Ephesus, they're starting a riot, whether it's here in Jerusalem, there's always a riot. Number two, you're, you're a ringleader of this sect. You don't really represent mainstream Judaism. You've got a a heretical distortion, a false understanding of our religion, and you are promoting it as the real thing, and you are doing much damage to Judaism. And number three, you're trying to defile the temple in Jerusalem, which everybody agreed was a capital punishment. Even under Roman law, you could be killed for doing that. And Paul wants to defend himself on all uh, occasions. So, a quick application point here. It's a little hard to make application to this from this particular section, but I will say this. It is true, and this is a theme that's run through the whole book of Acts. I hope you've seen it a lot by now. As believers, even when we are walking faithfully with the Lord, we must expect that at times we will encounter opposition and we will experience misrepresentation. Now listen, First Peter says, don't, if you're going to get in trouble, don't let it be because you actually stole something. Don't, don't actually be a murderer, First Peter. Don't, don't, don't go to jail because you murdered and stole. If, if you go to jail, go to jail because you're a Christian. And if you're going to be mistreated, let it be in the name of Christ, not because of anything you've done, so that people will see your deeds and they will feel shame in their own conscience and they'll glorify God on the day He visits us. They, they will see that you, are, you, you don't really deserve the, 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 what you're getting, and they will see that. So we should expect opposition and we should expect misrepresentation even when we are walking faithfully with the Lord. Point number two. Paul is going to defend himself here, verses 10 through 21. Let's pick up at verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years, this is what Paul says to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now stop there. Is Paul flattering Felix? No. Paul is being respectful right? He says something that's positive. You've been here for many years. Well, at this point, at least five years as governor and probably several more years uh, working with Samaria. So, you've been around for a while. You're familiar with the controversies of the Jews and the Romans. You've seen this before. So, I'm glad that I've I've got someone who's experienced to hear my case. No flattery, but it's also honoring uh, and respectful at the same time. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me Uh, disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either uh, in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Just real quick, again, some technical things just to mention here. Uh, When Paul says it has not been 12 days, probably what he's referring to is this. I don't think Paul's including the last five days he's been sitting in a prison cell at Caesarea. I don't think he's including those five days. I think he's including the time he spent in Jerusalem was a total of 12 days, and you didn't ask, but I'm going to give you them just so you can hear them. Uh, I'm getting this from a commentator. Day one, Paul arrives in Jerusalem in Acts 21.18. Day two, he has negotiations with James in that church, the elders, 21.18. Days three through nine, 
He's being purified. Remember how many days? Seven days of purification. That's days three through nine. That's in 21, 27. Day 10, Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. Remember he says, I'm here for the resurrection. And the Pharisees go, we like him. And the Sadducees, we don't like him. And they start fighting. That's day 10. Day 11 is the discovery of the plot against Paul by Paul's nephew. And day 12 is his transfer to Caesarea. So when he says 12 days, I don't think he's including the five days he's been sitting in a prison cell in Caesarea. I think he means, I was in Jerusalem for less than two weeks. How could I start a massive conspiracy and rebellion against Rome in 12 days? This is not very easy to do. It would take me months to do that. You think I just arrived there and I just immediately started a conspiracy, a rebellion against Rome. That, that, that is not even, that doesn't make sense. It's not rational. It's not a, a logical thing to conclude. Continue with me here. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, just pause here. Look back at the end of verse 14. Paul says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul is an inerrantist when it comes to the Bible, is he not? How much of the Bible does he believe? Well, I believe all the parts except Jonah being swallowed by the fish. That part, we all know that seems mythological. No, 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 no. That's not what… Oh, everything in the Bible is true except the, the Noah and the flood. That just seems a little bit… That, that can't be true. No. What does Paul believe? He believes everything. Everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament, Paul says, I'll stake my life on it. I am all about it. These guys are accusing me of leading a sect of the Nazarene against Judaism, like some kind of offshoot, some sort of perversion of Judaism. No, I believe every single word of your Old Testament. I believe all of it is inspired by God. I believe all of it is infallible and inerrant. I believe that all that it says either has or will come to pass exactly as God has written. I am not some offshoot, some heretical sect. I am believing that I am understanding the fulfillment of true Judaism. The Old Testament was pointing to the Nazarene. You can, you can tell when they call him the sect of the Nazarene, you know that's like a slur. They're using this against him. Oh, yeah, you're a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Can you hear echoes of, is it, uh, remember John 1, Nathaniel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There was a bigoted view of Nazareth. It was kind of out in the woods. It was, there was hardly anybody there. It was, it was this out in the country sort of place. Nothing good can come from there. And so, oh, you're, you're this, great, this great leader of the sect of the, the guy from Nazareth. That's hilarious, Paul. You're following this Nazarene around who's some sort of perversion of Judaism. And Paul says, listen, nothing that I am teaching is in contradiction to the Bible, the Old Testament. I believe all of it, every bit of it, and it is fulfilled in this Nazarene of all things. It, it is fulfilled in this son of David, and it points to the resurrection. Look at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, stop here. You know, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but the vast majority of Jews and the Pharisees did. So, when Paul says, listen, I'm not some perversion of Judaism. I'm mainstream. I believe in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. He's saying, listen, I'm not teaching something out of sorts with the Bible. I mean, he could, he could have said, go look at Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. Some will arise to everlasting shame and contempt. Some will arise to everlasting glory and will shine like the stars in the kingdom of our Father. The resurrection of the just and the unjust is not something I'm making up. This comes from our Old Testament. It is clearly taught in God's Word, and I believe in it. What effect does that have on Paul's life? Verse 16, 
Okay, so I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Verse 16, therefore, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, I don't know that I've actually heard someone say this sincerely, but I've heard the phrase, maybe you've heard this before, someone can say, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever heard that phrase? I don't know that I've ever heard someone say it genuinely to someone, but I've heard the phrase many times over the years. It gets thrown around. And Paul says, Paul kind of shifts it around. Paul says, actually, it is those who believe in heavenly rewards and heavenly punishment, those who believe in a resurrection of the just and the unjust, those who believe in eternal realities, those are the people who live in the here and now with real purpose, and they really care about right and wrong, good and evil. Is the, is the very fact of the resurrection something that influences your behavior week in and week out? Because Paul says, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy who just allows sin to get the best of me and takes over my life. I know that there's a resurrection. I know there's going to be a resurrection of those who know the Lord and those who do not know the Lord, a resurrection to pleasure or a resurrection to pain eternally. I know that that's coming. Therefore, I'm not here to play around. I'm not here to sort of start some revolt. I'm here because I want to live in accordance with my conscience before both God and man. You can think about, in fact, turn with me real quick. Hold your spot here and turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 to your right, a couple of books. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see a similar way of thinking from Paul, very similar way of thinking in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a tremendous passage. I won't explain it. I just want to read an extended part of it because it is so good. Again, thinking about judgment and thinking about how we live in the here and now and how those things connect. His tent here is his earthly body, 5.1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, in other words, if we die, we have a building from God, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens, our resurrection body. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, our resurrection body, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. That is, I don't want to be a soul without a body forever. I want to have a resurrection body to live in. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, this earthly body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So there's resurrection. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage here and now. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And he goes on. Look with me down at verse… He talks about becoming a believer. Look at verse 17. If anyone, therefore, is in Christ… He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you, some translations, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He, God the Father, 
made Him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, just state the core of the Christian faith right now in 20 seconds as clearly as I know how. This is the core message of Christianity. This is the message. I am a hopeless sinner left to myself, and if I have to stand before God, His holiness, I will be absolutely destroyed in the final judgment. I have no hope because of my sin. The only hope is going to come from outside of me, not from inside of me, not from working harder, trying harder, not from making a resolution, not from, not from doing whatever it is. Accountability partner is not going to get you to heaven on this one, okay? You, you can't do it. You cannot work hard enough. Jesus comes and He fulfills the righteousness of God. He lives a perfectly sinless, righteous life. When He dies on the cross, God treats Jesus as if He had lived my sinful life. God made Him to be sin. Who knew no sin? Well, if he never knew sin, if he never committed sin, how could he be sin? It's not with his sin, it's with what? My sin, your sin. He became sin. So that God can turn around, if I turn from sin and trust Christ, God can turn around, he can treat me what? As the righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Because Christ's righteousness is credited or imputed or counted to me, my spiritual bank account. His righteousness is counted to me, transferred to me, and my sin has been counted, imputed, transferred to Christ so God can look on me and see the righteousness of Jesus. He can look on Jesus and see the sinfulness of me on the cross. And Jesus completely took care of that. He eradicated that so that we actually can stand before God on the final day with confidence. And when it says the resurrection of the just, it doesn't mean we're perfectly sinless. It means we are righteous in Christ and our behavior is beginning bit by bit to conform to the image of Jesus. Let's turn back to Acts 24. Was Paul in Jerusalem to try to upset people? No. Look at verse 17. He's continuing to defend himself. He tries to live with a clear conscience. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Have we heard a lot about those alms? Collecting from the Gentile churches to bring them to the Jewish Christians? He talks about it in Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians. While I was doing this, so why… While I am doing what? Giving money to the Jewish people, the believing Jews, which is tens of thousands of them, and doing what? Practicing offerings, ritual purification. I am not trying to give offense while I'm doing those very things. Verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, and you see he stops in mid-sentence. Paul's not going to accuse himself of what they said. He says, listen, where are they, by the way? The only people who claim to know what I did in the temple, the, 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 the Jews from Ephesus, the Asian Jews, they, they aren't even here. So why are we even having this trial? It's almost like it strikes Paul in mid-sentence. Verse 19, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? So my, the accusers, where are they? Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, the Sanhedrin other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. That was in chapter 23, verse 6. So, Paul says, okay, do you get what Paul's trying to do? It's, see if this makes sense. Paul is rightly and wisely trying to eliminate the accusations about disturbing the Roman peace. Is Paul starting riots anywhere? He himself. No, people around him get mad at him and they start the riot. 
But Paul has never started a riot as a believer. Other people start one against him. He doesn't start the riot. He's not trying to start riots. So Paul says, I'm not disturbing the Roman peace. I'm not doing that. Number two, did I defile the temple? Give me one eyewitness that saw me do that. They aren't here if they even claim to be. They're not even here. So there is no eyewitness. If no one saw me do that, that's not true. So Paul is trying to get rid of those charges, which the Roman governor would really not like, and he's trying to boil it down to what it really is. It's not about Roman politics. It's about a theological disagreement about Jesus. That's the real reason why people don't like Paul, what he says about Jesus, the Messiah, the, the one resurrected. The reason everything else around him is, goes the way it goes is because his theology about Jesus is detested by so many people. So Paul says, listen, Roman governor, I don't start riots. Number two, there's no one who can witness me defiling the temple. I didn't do it. The only thing you've got on me, and I'll admit it right now, is I preach the resurrection in Jesus. I do. I'm guilty as charged. It's a theological disagreement between the Jewish people here and Paul. It's not a political disturbance. And at this point, Paul's case really could be almost dismissed except for Felix and his twisted motives. So let's go to the last point here. Number three, Paul puts Felix on trial. Paul puts Felix on trial. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so he knew about Christianity, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, let's start here. Felix has political motives to not dismiss Paul's case. You ready? Felix, okay, just a little historical background. Felix is in tension with the Jews already. They don't like him, right? We've talked about that. He, very soon after this, after the two years are over, he is going to be sent back to Rome, and the Jews are going to bring strong accusations against him to Caesar that could get him in trouble. He ends up getting out of it, but he, his life could be in danger here if the Jews don't like him, okay? So, similar to Pilate, even though he doesn't like the Jewish leaders, he doesn't care about pleasing them, and he knows the guy on trial is innocent, whether it's Jesus or Paul, they, they know that they're innocent. In both cases, they treat the person who's innocent unjustly because they don't want the Jews to be upset at them because it could lead to their personal problems later with Caesar, if that makes sense. So he keeps Paul here and he says, hey, I'm going to wait for Lysias to show up. Now, here's the problem. Here's why that can't be a real reason. Lysias already wrote him a letter explaining everything he knows about the case against Paul. So bringing Lysias will increase his knowledge by 0%. He's already got the Lysias letter. You can go back and read it in chapter 23. He's got the whole letter from Lysias. If he wants to go read that, it's in chapter 23, verse 26 and following. He already knows everything Lysias knows. This is clearly an excuse to keep Paul in prison so that it's a stalemate. He pleases the Jews by keeping Paul locked up, but he doesn't have Paul killed because he knows he's innocent. He's trying to play things both directions. Let's get to the meat of the paragraph here. This is the meat of the paragraph. It starts in verse 24. And this is a fascinating section of this chapter. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he, Paul... Now just stop here. Mid-sentence. Let's say it's you. You're locked up in the praetorium on the seashore at Mediterranean Sea. The governor, one of the highest officials in the Roman Empire, the governor of Judea, wants to have a personal meeting with you, and he's actually probably a little curious about what you teach. That's probably part of the reason why he meets with Paul here. He wants to know who this ringleader, what he really teaches. He knows about Christianity. He wants to know more, perhaps, in some way. 
He's curious. His wife is Jewish, so he must know something of the Jewish background. They bring Paul in before him. They ask him some questions about what he teaches. What would you have said if you were in Paul's position? I'm not saying you in this room, but I, I could see a Christian saying something like this, you know, you know, Felix, God loves you, uh, has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, the Lord just wants to bless you, just wants your life to get better and better, and uh, I just want you to know the Lord loves you. Jesus loves you, man. That's the gospel. Jesus loves you. He loves everybody. He loves the world, and I just want you to walk in that love, just experience that love. He's been so gracious to me. The God is so good. He is such a great God, and I hope you experience something, how good God is, how gracious, how loving He is. I just hope you know that. I hope you experience that. Some people would say He just presented the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel was not presented in that presentation. That was an Americanized, edited version of the gospel, and as has been said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a whole lie. You've probably heard that, right? There's some truth in what I said, but I left out enough fundamental parts of the gospel that it was not the gospel. And listen, had Paul said that, I'm sure Felix would have smiled and said, that's great. I've never heard of this God, Jesus, but man, this is great. And if He loves me, that's fantastic. He has an unconditional love for me. That is wonderful. Great to hear it, Paul. See you later. And he might have been on great terms with Paul. That would have been such a pleasing message to hear. Who doesn't want to hear that? Are you ready for what Paul does? I mean, this, please let this be somewhat astonishing because this guy can have Paul executed or not. It's up to his arbitrary wishes, really, what he does with Paul. Paul is in his hands, and yet in a second, the tables turn here. Let's read it again. Verse 24. After some time, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So far, so good. Look at verse 25. Who in the world would say this next? And as he reasoned about three things, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Now, stop there. I think I know why Paul picked those three terms. Can I give you a little bit more background? This may be the most interesting thing about Felix and Drusilla. See, Drusilla was 20 years old. We know this historically when she's standing there next to her husband, her new husband, by the way. See, she was married at age 15 to a king named Azazus, not making this stuff up, from another area, another king. Uh, that king married her. She was 15 years old. Historians say that she was known for her beauty. When uh, Felix saw her, he immediately was smitten by her, even though she was so young. He seduced her away from her husband, committed adultery with her, and she divorced her former husband, and she married Felix. So now she's on her second husband at age 15. Now she's 20. Felix is on his third wife. He's already divorced two other women, and now he's married this teenage girl. She's 20 now, sitting next to him. His life is not known for self-control, is it? Of all the things you could talk about right now with the guy who holds your life in his hands, Paul says, okay, you want to know the gospel? And Paul says, okay, before you can understand grace, you have to understand law. Before you can understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news of sin and judgment before the gospel is going to make any sense. So he starts with law and he says, okay, righteousness, or the word is also justice. Is he a just judge of Judea? No, he has acted unjustly and unrighteously for the whole five years he's been there. You can go read about it in the history books. He was not a just or righteous man. Number two, self-control. Look at the bride sitting next to you. She is living proof, and you are living proof to her that you are both not able to control your desires. You are not able to have self-control. And number three, there's a judgment coming that is not a Roman judgment. Had Felix even thought that there was a judgment above Roman judgment? In his mind, the king of kings and lord of lords was a guy named Nero. 
He was the Caesar. He was Lord. And the ultimate judgment was standing before Caesar, this corrupt and, 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 and this corrupt Caesar. But Paul speaks of a judgment higher than Caesar, a judgment that even Caesar himself will stand before, and even you, Roman governor, will stand before. And he says, how are you going to do? And so Paul brings the bad news of sin and judgment. And listen, Felix's response is amazing. Middle of verse 25, Felix was alarmed. I just have to tell you, you know, we get the word phobia, fear of, like acrophobia or whatever, you know, fear of heights. Uh, the, the Greek word phobos is where we get where phobia from. This is the word enphobos. It's an intensified version of the word phobia. He was trembling with fear when Paul presented the gospel to him. Let me just, would your gospel presentation make anyone tremble with fear? Think about how many gospel presentations get thrown around and nobody would even dare tremble. It's just a happy, happy kind of message. But there's, there's the valley of judgment before the high mountain of the cross and acceptance with God. And you've got to go through the bad news to get to the good news. And in America, we want to cut the bad news out. And we want to only talk about the good news. And again, the good news without the bad news is not any news. It's a lie. It's not true if you leave the one out for the sake of the other. Now look at Felix. Middle of verse 25, Felix was alarmed phobia. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Let me say here, there is a postponing of Jesus and the gospel that is incredibly tempting for all of us in different ways. So right now, let me talk to the Christians in the room, which is most of us, right? As a Christian, you could be sitting here right now, and no one around you knows, but right now in this moment, you are harboring deep in your heart a sinful pattern of lifestyle or a sinful desire or a sinful decision. No one knows about it, but in your heart of hearts, you know your heart is locked into it. And you act the same outwardly, you say all the right stuff outwardly, but deep down, what is cutting off your fellowship with the Lord this last month or this last week? What is hindering your quiet time and your prayer? Your Bible reading is so dry because deep down you want to live life the way you want to live. You want to do things the way you want to do. And deep down you're holding on to something your flesh wants and you don't want to release it to experience the freedom and joy of walking with the Lord. There's this fear that if I really give this up and really walk with the Lord, it's going to be worse for me, not better. And in the end, faith says, no, always holiness is better. Walking with Jesus is better. I will not believe the lie of the serpent. I will believe that God's way is always better for me and more honoring to him. And in this moment right now, there's part of you that says, okay, I can feel a little conviction, and I can feel I should probably release that. I need to turn from that. I need to repent of that. But deep down, if you're being honest, and, and it's hard to do that in these moments, is to say, I don't want to let go of this. I want to hold on to this, and I don't really care if it interrupts my fellowship with God for the next month. I don't care if it m just makes my quiet time so flat for the next four weeks. I don't care. I'm going to hold on to this thing. And, and the Lord would say to you, don't delay these kinds of things. Don't say... I'm alarmed, go away for the present, we'll deal with this when I have opportunity, when I have a better moment. No, no, no. In this moment, whether believer or unbeliever, if there is something that you are holding on to that's keeping you from full fellowship, free fellowship with Christ, release it. Hebrews 12, as we run this race, throw away the sin that clings so closely and so easily entangles and let us run the race with endurance marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Do not put off till tomorrow a reckoning and a working with the Lord that could be done right now in this moment. All right, we'll, we'll bring this to an end. Look at verses 26 and 27. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Paul had mentioned an offering, so maybe this guy's got money. He can, he can bribe me. 
So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. For two years, he had the greatest man other than Jesus who ever lived in his own home, and he met with him perhaps more than a dozen times over those two years and got to hear the gospel from Paul himself. The first time he was troubled, and after that he was just trying to get a bribe. If we harden our hearts against the gospel, it is so easy to harden it the second time, the third time. I'll deal with it later. And Hebrews says over and over, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in the wilderness. No, no, no. Today, receive the message of Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, let us all know that even trembling before Your Word, even being alarmed over talk of sin and judgment as the gospel is being presented, that is no sure sign of conversion or regeneration. Felix was frightened by his sin and judgment, but he was not converted. Even though he was afraid, he put it off. And then later, his motives were so mixed that he was just looking for a bribe from Paul, and that's why he called on him so many times. And despite Paul, no doubt, telling him the gospel many more times, Felix shows absolutely no evidence that he ever followed that fear into the true joy and freedom of trusting in Christ for his salvation. And God, I pray everyone right now, within the sound of my voice, anyone who does not know you would in this very moment have their eyes opened that they would see that what they have been clinging to was husks and ashes compared to the treasures of Christ, the unsearchable riches of knowing Jesus. If that sounds like gibberish to someone right now, Lord, I pray you would show that that is absolutely true, that Jesus is more satisfying and more life-giving than any alternative. And for the believer in the room, Lord, who right now has just been dry spiritually for week after week after week, The Bible is so boring right now. Prayer feels so detached from reality. Lord, I pray that whatever is holding me or whoever it is back in these moments that we struggle with, God, I pray we would release that, that we would throw it aside, that we would repent of our sin, that we would embrace you for all that you are, Lord. Help us not hold anything back from your searching gaze. I pray we would lay it all out before you. You would search me, O Lord, search me and try my inmost thought. See if there is any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.